Hi, welcome to Revenue Marketing Television, the CMO Insights Series. I am your host, Jeff Pedowitz, President and CEO of the Pedowitz Group. Today, I'm pleased to host Wes Durow, who is Chief Marketing Officer of Mitel Networks. Wes, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for your time, Jeff. It's great to be here today. Oh, awesome. Thank you. So a lot of change going on in your world uh, with Mitel and some of your competitors. Uh, over the last couple of years. So tell us a little bit about that and then what's your role as CMO driving that? Uh, it's a great question. Um, you know, Mitel is, is pretty unique because what we do every day is, is really try to make how businesses, whether large or small, uh, whether they compete locally or, or internationally, communicate and collaborate seamlessly. And uh, from a business standpoint, our biggest competitors are Cisco and Microsoft. So really big companies that we've got to fight and and compete with every day and we are this is all we do every day so we're a top three brand in north america number one brand for example in europe and as you look at the marketing function in this world and you have to differentiate uh, it it it's really important that marketing be an extension of strategy and that's that's the fundamental thing that's probably really changed is the evolution of marketing from a um, a, a functional role where it's crank me out a new piece of collateral or I need a, another data sheet on this uh, to an advisory role where, hey, what do you think about this problem that we've got to solve to now really it truly is a strategic role, which is, you know, which segments do we go after? How do we drive margin or share expansion here? Um, and, and, and where do we put our resources? So so that's that's probably the biggest fundamental shift that we've had at Mitel is the role of marketing has moved from a, like I said, a a, a, uh, a functional role to an advisory role to now, really a uh, a strategic role. So, in addition to it being a strategic role, because you've you've held several CMO positions over the years, are you finding that you're having to run it more like a business than you ever did before? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, when I started my career. Marketing was more art than science, but we're now in a world where the ability to track data and and really understand the outcome, uh, not just across marketing, but the whole of the organization is is far clearer. So if we go and hire a salesperson, I, I know for a fact uh, that uh, an average performing salesperson will probably generate 10x their salary in terms of revenue. And so when we think, look at, at an investment in marketing, you know, our cost of capital, whether it's an R&D investment, whether it's a new sales rep, is about 8 to 12x. So it really leads us to a point where we've got to be able to make sure that we, we live within that kind of framework uh, in terms of marketing investment, whether it be people, program dollars, what have you. And that's been the biggest change really over the last 20 years. This is a definitely a big change. What about, what about on the talent side? Are you finding the skill set you need today to compete globally is changing? And then how are you addressing that both from an organizational design perspective as well as the type of people that you're recruiting to help you lead? That's a great question. Uh, uh, if, if I think about talent and people coming into the workplace, there, there are a few things that are really, really important. Uh, one, you still have to have people that are what I call insanely curious, and that means they, they want to always learn and learn something new because what worked two, three, four, five years ago may not work today, and frankly, something that worked five, six, seven years ago may all of a sudden work again today. So you take, for example, for us, we're seeing a return to 
uh, direct mail, direct marketing, people are, are almost tired of the digital deluge that they face every day and are actually inspired when they actually get something on their desk, which is a big shift. Yeah. So, so you have to have people that are really open-minded and curious, number one. Number two, the people that come in uh, have to think of themselves as business owners. If they are um, willing to put up with inefficient systems or if they're willing to put up with uh, obscure or not clear strategies or route to market structures, you're going to have suboptimal marketing results. And so because you have this ecosystem that fits together, uh, people that, that, that the best marketing people understand how that works or at least want to understand that. And so that really forces them to be business people first. And you're looking for people with athletic skills. So, yes, there's there's room for somebody that may be a PR communication specialist or a digital specialist. But the best folks that are even in very functional roles like that are the ones that can expand and lift themselves beyond that and understand what does that mean to our channels? What's that mean to an end customer, uh, especially in this world where 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 folks, by the time they reach you, they're well through the decision making process. So Mitel's global organization is a lot of talk about centers of excellence over the last couple of years. What are you doing globally to optimize performance? Yeah, that, that's a great question. You know, it, it is uh, uh, it's tough. Uh, our business is about 50 percent outside North America and we've got big centers, particularly in the UK, France and Germany. Um, you've got different adoptions of technology in different places. You also have different, very different uh, cultural ways that people make decisions. If you look at Germany or Japan or India, people make very fact-based decisions. If you look at the U.S., Australia, the U.K., uh, emotion still matters. People make, uh, it's not just a pure uh, quali it's a quantitative fact-based decision. There's a quanti qualitative element to that that's, that's unique. So making sure that you have a balance of that is really important. The, the key thing is how do you get people to work as a team across uh, blended boundaries? And fortunately, you know, we make collaboration tools, which includes things like video and this that, that really make that easy and not just dependent on email. And that's a big part of it. So as you develop centers of excellence, talent comes from anywhere. And we've had to be flexible enough to realize that and smart enough to know which which ideas can apply in one geography versus another. OK, no, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, obviously, it's, it's a great advantage that you have such uh, good technical capability for you to bring your people closer together. So from a process standpoint, what are some of the bigger initiatives that you and your team are working on to scale? Well, I think the biggest thing we're working on right now is, is just the next phase of our website and web experience. So as you talk about uh, unique differences by, by, um, by types of buyers and, and you think about, you know, if you look at the latest CEB research, buyers are 60% of the way through the decision cycle by the time they reach out to a vendor. I believe that to be true, but but I also think that a lot of the stuff that's been done and said and built around buyers' journeys, it, there's some and personas. There's some good in that, and there's some nonsense in that. People don't go from A to B to C. They may go from A to C, back to B, even back to A, and then all the way from A to C. So it is a mixed up, muddled up world that we live in. And from a digital standpoint, you need to be able to understand that. There's a lot of things, a lot of work around um, uh, multi-point attribution, which is great. I think the biggest thing to really focus on is uh, going back to basics. You know, what's the buyer vision that you're creating? Uh, that that and it still goes back to how do they make more money or save more money? It's, it's the pirate's code is the Rubik's cube is not that complex. So so going back to the simple pieces there, and then the notion of hyper personalization. So when somebody comes to our website, 
if they're from Germany and they're interested in contact center solutions, I want them to feel like the second time they come there, they know that we are talking to them. We're using case studies that are in German, that are contact center oriented, and we can continue that narrative and help them if they end up going back to an awareness piece of content versus a consideration piece of content versus a purchase piece of content, help make sure that they can go in and out of that, that their unique buyer journey. There's not one path. We look for patterns, but there's not one path anymore. And so we're doing a lot of work on our website to build build that and make that hyper-personalized. I, I hear a lot of executives talking about they, they want the Netflix experience for their customers, right? So exactly. you go in and it's already recommending things you should look at. It's constantly changing and updating. And then of course, you know, if you have multiple people in the household, it's by persona, right? So my wife exactly. logs in, she sees one set of recommendations, my daughter says something else. So it sounds like you're trying to do something similar with your website. Yeah, and people make the mistake, they all talk about the notion of big data. And big data is, it can be overwhelming. And you know, I think when I, we spend time with our customers, they talk about little data. So if you first start thinking about What's a piece of data that tells you what the temperature is? If you get that right, then you can go on to wind chill, humidity, and other factors. And so we're trying to be just really practical and not lose sight of the basic things that have to be executed well, which are, um, you know, trust has been fundamentally broken in, in our society. So the notion of third-party endorsements, those sorts of things, and, and having other people tell your story for you uh, is really important. So the problems you solve, that buyer vision, Let's get that right. Make sure you attach that, and, and like you said, in a, a Netflix type type experience, and that'll go a long way. So, how how are you going to extend what you're doing with the website through your other channels? Yeah, the biggest channel to extend is is through our Salesforce directly, and and one of the best things you can do that we're trying to do is include them as part of that process. So we spend a lot of time on basic storytelling capabilities. So uh, and and it's it, it's it's a lost art form, particularly as we talk about new graduates and so forth. You know, we've, we're raising a generation that communicates in 140 characters. And so the, the art of storytelling uh, becomes really important. And, and the, it, again, it's, it's, it's not that difficult. It is, you know, what's the setting? What's the complication? What's the turning point? What's the resolution? It's just like when you watch a movie, only we try to condense it into 90 seconds. And so we spend a lot of time arming our sellers and having them build, share their best stories of how they change, uh, how we've changed the way a customer uh, does business but use it really in customer language, make the customer the hero. So we take those stories back into the website, back into the case studies and flip that. So that's been a big piece of it. And then from there, um, you know, similarly arming our channel partners that do that with that. And, and probably the biggest piece of this, because we are a challenger brand, you know, like I said, we've got really big companies we have to compete with. We have to have what we call a unique commercial insight. So for us, we did a study the other day that talked about how